let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5, beginning this Sunday on the Sermon on the Mount. Got a copy of God's Word in your lap. Open up there and follow along with me as I read. (coughs) Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We live in a fascinating period in history. Certainly, every period of history is fascinating in its own right. Uh, There are many things that are the same. History repeats itself, but then there are unique elements that that maybe uh, describe a particular era. And as we think about the era in which we live, we live in a technological age, don't we? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, But we live in a technological age which promises flourishing, doesn't it? Promises ease and happiness that previous generations couldn't even dream of. Technology can provide that. Just over a decade ago, it's almost 11 years in June, it will be, that we, we received this magical device known as the iPhone. Uh, it's hard to believe it's already been a decade um, and uh, and that, that little device has changed the way the world works. And if you don't have one of these, you have a smartphone of some sort that has basically been um, brought from that, unless you're Mike Boslaw. You don't have <laughs> either of those, um, but it's okay. Um, you, after you hear what I say, you might say, man, I'm, I'm, in good, I'm in a good place. But our lives have been changed by these little devices, smartphones. Everything that we need or want is literally at our fingertips. Not only can you order food, but I can now pay for it by just tapping my phone at Chick-fil-A and it just buzzes and it feels so satisfying. And it was the ease I didn't have to bring out my card, swipe it, be told actually you have to put the chip into the thing. It just does it. It's marvelous. You can even 
have it ready before you arrive. All these wonderful things. We can get our news. We can get it alerts to us. We can customize it. I don't want to know about these things. I only want to know about those things. We can watch TV. I mean, as a kid, I dreamed of being able to take my TV wherever I wanted. And now you can. You can video chat with friends and family. We welcome to the future. We're doing it. Um, we get directions. Um, we can control our house while we're in church. We can have ongoing conversations via text messaging with whoever we want or as many people as we want at the exact same time. By the way, I prefer you don't put me on those group texts. But, um, but nevertheless, we can do all those things. We can also access social media, which is a world in of itself. Not only... Does it promise connectivity with our friends, which in some measure it does? You, if you're involved in any of that, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, you, you, you kind of, uh, you, you might be connected with people that you knew from high school or growing up or, or just knowing what's going on and you don't even have to talk to them. It, it's, it's quite remarkable, but you, you, you know what's going on somewhat in their life. But not only those people you know, it's the people you wish you knew. It's the celebrities, the cultural icons. You, you can identify with them. And, and strangely enough, you start thinking, I, I, I think I know this person. I feel this person. I'm one with this person. And social media says you can have it all. Yet with all this technology, and although we seem to be more connected than ever, the reality is, is that the studies show that people are more lonely than ever. Even though we have it all the time. You can get a hold of anyone at any time, at any moment of the time. And yet, we're the loneliest people on the face of the planet. Although we have all this stuff. Instead of creating happiness, it's shown that these studies of those who use social media are more likely to be depressed. Suicide rates have gone up since this age. Why is that the case? Why is it the case? Is it just because it doesn't work? Well, maybe it's, it is working. It's just not working in the direction in the way we thought it would. One author, Tony Reinke, has written a good little book that moms and dads in particular, I would, I would uh, commend to you. It's called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. Uh, and it's literally 12 ways. Each chapter is 12 ways. And I think this is important because... As I look around this church, how many of our little ones are running around with their own little iPhones? And are you aware of how it's changing you? Are you, are you aware of how it's definitely changing them? And these 12 ways are not positive ways. They're negative ways. And, and, and I'm just going to list a couple of them for you, actually eight. Twelve of them was too much, but I'll give you eight. It causes us to be addicted to distraction. How many times I see families out eating dinner in, in a restaurant, but they got their kids' devices propped up on their cup all through the meal because they can't, they can't have a meal now because they, they, they're addicted to it. And the truth is you can see adults doing the same thing. You know? It causes us to ignore our true relationships. We, 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 we're, we're more interested in those, those crafted relationships on social media than the real ones that are right before us. It causes us to crave immediate approval. 
That's where the depression comes in. Here's what I'm doing. Not enough people liked it. They like their thing. Or, or not enough people saw this. I see that even creeping in the church. We're now doing live stream. Hello. But you know what people, how many people liked it? How many people were watching it? As if it was a benchmark of success. Did you get, you could actually like, I don't know if this is happening right now, but you could say, oh, I like that point. And the hearts start going up on the screen. What if you don't get the hearts up on the screen? We crave now immediate approval. Actually, I would say the technological age has, has, has made us more of a microwave culture. I want something and I want it now. And I can get it right through my little smartphone. And if I don't get it right then, I'll just keep doing it until I get it. It causes us to feed on polished production. In other words, we think the things out there are reality distorts our expectations. People, certainly celebrities, cultural icons, even our own friends and family, when we're seeing they, everything's crafted and put out there. Even the bad news, we don't tell you everything, right? We just tell you what we want you to know about us. It's, it's editing on the fly. And, and then you begin to, to say, well, I, you know what, I, I've never experienced that. And, and you begin to second guess yourself and think, well, man, everybody else's life seems just so wonderful. Well, I, I don't experience any of this. And it, it, it literally begins to kill you and eat at you because you have bought into a distorted view of reality. It causes us to become what we like. We literally become consumed. We, we like those things or we dislike and, and, and we, we continue to try to produce more of that which we like or star or whatever it is that you do causes us to be lonely just do a little experiment at home those of you who are probably in my age group this will be more readily apparent how many of you sit in your living room the tv's on and you look around the room and you see everyone in all the chairs were, ha were in the living room together but everyone has their device everyone it's kind of, we're ignoring our true relationships, living for something that cannot satisfy. It causes us to fear missing out. I can't do without it, or I will miss what's going on at school with my friends, or what's going on in the news, as if you really needed to know in the nanosecond that it takes, that you couldn't just found out some other means. We're addicted to it, addicted to what we might not hear. And it also causes us to be harsh with others because everyone can give an opinion about anything at any moment. Even in texting, we can just let it loose. And we haven't learned humility and how to keep our mouth shut. It's training us to vent and give full vent to our fury. And so what's the solution? Well, this isn't, you know, this isn't actually a sermon on get rid of your smartphone. As you can see, I'm preaching from a similar device. Doesn't, the solution isn't necessarily get rid of your phone, although for some of you that, that might be where you're at for other reasons. But it's to recognize how it's affecting you so that you're not controlled by it. You need, you need to be aware. Maybe just do a little experiment. I, I do this every now and then. I just delete all social media. I say for the next month I'm done. Can I do that? Can you live without it? 
need to be aware of what these things are doing and what they're promising and, and, and really check ourselves and say, are we going after these things because we believe the promises, empty promises? Are we believing the lie that, that whatever the world offers us, and I just gave one example, that it will lead us to true happiness? Because it won't. The way to true happiness is to slow down and to place ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount does. And what we're going to do, we're going to slow down. And, and we're, we're not going to be like Martha, who was busy with many things. But we're going to do the better thing and sit and listen to Jesus' teaching. We want to come and learn from our Savior what it looks like to live as God's people under God's rule in God's presence. That's what we need to do. That's what will satisfy your soul. Last week, we were introduced to Jesus' ministry and his call to discipleship, his call to come follow me. We learned that he is the light who has shined in the darkness to rescue people from the curse of sin. And Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry in, in chapter 4, verse 17, saying, From that time Jesus began preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We get a little bit more in verse 23 of chapter 4. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. In those verses, Matthew introduces to us what we're going to see for the next several chapters. Chapter 5 through uh, 7 is Jesus' teaching, and chapter 8 and 9 is Jesus' healing of all the afflicted. And actually, it's an, it's an embodiment of how it looks like in the person of Christ, how his, his teaching and his person are life-giving. And so we're really entering a, a new section by which what, what was the content of his preaching of the gospel? What was he calling people to? Well, it's all of Matthew 5 through 7. And then we see how he was serving the people in chapters 8 and 9. I'm really excited about this journey. I'm excited because I want us to be like verse 1. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. That's the posture that we must have. And I'm excited as, I, as this week I actually read just chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 9. It, it took me maybe 10 minutes. Just read it in one sitting and got to see and hear Jesus speaking. And got visualized what it looked like as he, as he healed the afflicted. One of the things our community group is going to do, heads up guys is we're going to read chapter 5 through 9 tonight and then reflect on the sermon. Because where we are today is really just his introduction. We're going to see an introduction into a way of living, into following Christ and, and what that looks like, and then he, he unpacks it through the rest of the sermon. And I'm excited to see how he unpacks this in our life as we sit at his feet and he works in us, and he exposes us, and he heals us. Today we embark upon the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. 
And that's not me, that's Jesus. I heard one brother say that he announced to his church, I'm going to preach somebody else's sermon today. And, and then he preached this sermon, and at the end of the service, they said, well, so whose sermon was that that you preached? <laughs> it kind of backfired on him. I'm, I'm preaching Jesus' sermon. And those of us who have grown up in the church, we, we know this section of Scripture. We've heard maybe it called the Sermon on the Mount. We read here in chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When individuals in the Bible ascend a mountain in Scriptures, they meet with God. That's what that happens in every case when someone goes up the mountain. They meet with God. And here, Matthew wants us to think of Moses, who ascended the mountain as the crowds of Israel gathered at its base. Interestingly enough, that phrase, he went up on the mountain, is, is only found, speaking of Moses, it's found three times. And every time, that phrase, he went up and ascended the mountain, speaks of Moses. And so it's a, it's a key word, a phrase that we should be thinking, oh, this is like Moses. Moses, who went up. And as the crowds of Israel gathered at the base of the mountain. However, at that time, Moses received the word of God to be given to the people. Yet on that mountain, the earth shook, the thunder quaked, the lightning flashed, and a warning was given that if anyone touches this mountain, they will die. You know that story? Even if your goat gets loose and it touches this mountain, you will die. But here in Matthew, we see the crowds gather. But when Jesus sat down on the mountain, his disciples came to him. This one who comes and stands on the mountain delivering the word of God says, Come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Jesus is the true and better Moses who brings God's word to his people and invites them to come and find life. To find abundant life both now and in the age to come. And in this sermon, Jesus invites all to come to him so that they may experience what it truly means to be blessed or happy in God. That's what he's going to do. And so this morning, we're going to explore the Beatitudes. You, you, you might be familiar with that phrase. A Beatitude is simply a, a, a blessing. And Jesus presents nine virtues in this text which characterizes those who are truly blessed and who experience true happiness as God intends. In other words, these are virtues of God's kingdom and the way of living by which God's people will be defined. Therefore, this sermon is an invitation for all to come follow Jesus and discover what it truly means to live. It's a call for all to move from being a part of the crowd, verse 1, to being part of his disciples, the end of verse 1. So with this goal in mind, I've grouped these nine Beatitudes into three groups. And you want to think of it as three tiers of three, offering us three virtues which characterize God's kingdom people and introduce them into God's way of living, which results in true happiness. I, I venture to say, everyone here today, this morning, says, I want to be happy. I want you to be happy in God by the end of today. I want you to find your true happiness in Him and find your true joy in Him and one that will last. 
And Jesus says, these are the virtues, these are the characteristics that will, that will mark those who are truly happy in God. Let's consider the first, the virtues of humility. The virtues of humility. We see these in verses 3 through 5. Jesus, as he ascends the mountain, he opens his mouth and he begins to teach them. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn and the meek. He says, blessing upon them. Now, as we think of being poor in spirit, mourning and being meek, those aren't virtues of the world, are they? No, the world tells you to think much of yourself. The world tells you never mourn or be sad. You should never have a low self-esteem about yourself, ever, since we give trophies to everyone, right? We know that. No one should feel bad about themselves. No one should be corrected. No one should be sad. Rather, you should be aggressive and get yours because everyone else is. But Jesus says that's not the way to blessedness. That's not the way to true happiness. It's the poor in spirit, he says, who are blessed. What, what does he mean to be poor in spirit? Much of what Jesus is talking about here is, is concerning his kingdom. Remember, he came preaching the kingdom of heaven. He came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is all within a, a kingdom context and fulfillment of what God has promised in the Old Testament. And, and we read in Isaiah 66, verse 2, of when God's kingdom comes, who is it that the Lord will favor? And Isaiah says this, this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is what Jesus is referring to. The poor in spirit are humble, they're, they're contrite, and they tremble at God's word. They fear God. They don't stand on God's word. They stand underneath God's word. They listen. They're quick to hear, slow to speak. They live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That imagery of being poor, we, we, we understand that. That's to be needy, right? Poor in spirit. Here is, is, is being spiritually needy. Jesus says... God looks upon favor on those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Those who see themselves as bankrupt, as, as having nothing to offer. Why are they blessed? Why, why, why would that be a blessing to you? Be poor in spirit. Well, Jesus says, because. You see there for, that word for? He, he says it every time. He gives the blessing and then for, and then he speaks the blessing. Well, just think of that as because. For can mean multiple things. Well, he means here because. Why are they blessed? Why are the poor in spirit blessed? For or because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This truth, brothers and sisters, should lift your spirits, especially of you who are broken and who are recognizing your spiritual poverty. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. It belongs to those who recognize their spiritual need. Those who recognize that, that they have nothing in and of themselves, the good news is, is that God has given you his kingdom. Notice there's a present reality to that truth. 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's yours now. You're now a citizen of the king and of his kingdom. Now. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to all who will hear, but this is only true for his disciples, is that you are citizens of the kingdom. And that will impact your hopes, but it will also impact how you live here. It will have an impact on your life, and that will be a blessing to you. This is the blessing. You are citizens of the kingdom. And certainly those who are poor in spirit will also be those who then mourn. What do they mourn over? Well, certainly they, they mourn over their own sin, their own guilt, and their own shame. They see themselves for who they truly are. I'm reminded of James. The book of James, he, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, he, he speaks a word to those who are haughty, and those who are proud and who lift themselves up. And he, and he tells them, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It means as we are poor in spirit, that'll, that'll flush itself up. We mourn over our sin. When's the last time you wept over your sin? Have you ever wept over your sin? doesn't mean that we live lives defeated. We remember the truth of theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But we just came to the Lord's table and we were praying and confessing. We, we should be people who are mourning over our sins. Notice what he says, because they will be comforted. Blessed are you who mourn over your sin, because it is you who will be comforted. Your mourning will be turned to laughter. Even Jesus, though, however, mourns. Obviously not over his own sin, for he had none. He mourned over the world. He mourned over Israel. And it means that we should mourn over the sin of others and what takes place in the world. But just a word of caution. We, we so quickly will, will mourn over the, the many sins of others than mourn over one sin in our own, our own life. But as we see, Jesus will tell us, as we take the log out of our own eye, we can see clearly as we seek to, to mourn over someone else's sin. Essentially, Jesus is telling us that as his people, we'll, we'll generally experience a grief, a feeling that we're, we're disadvantaged and, 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 and we are strangers in the world and, and, and seemingly enticed by it, but we're, we want to flee from it. That those who mourn over what Jesus, is mourn, what Jesus mourns over, it is they who will be comforted. Each of these blessings actually is the same blessing, and he's just He's just actually giving us a different perspective of it. All these blessings are what it means for yours to be the kingdom. And to be part of the kingdom is, number one, you will be comforted. God will comfort you. The truth of the gospel comforts you. We've been singing it, haven't we? We're forgiven. His blood has washed away our sin. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's a joy. That's a blessing of a future reality that we're experiencing now. A comfort and a reality 
That though I have mourned over my sins, there's the good news that Christ has covered my sins. And I constantly am confessing and appropriating the gospel to my life. And therefore, as I mourn over uh, of another sin, my mourning is not a, a hatred in a, in, a, in a sense of hypocriticalness. No, it's a, it's a sense in which I mourn and I grieve with you. And I will labor with you. And I will remind you of the gospel that has been so good to me and brought comfort in my life so that you may come to the same place I am. That's what this looks like. It's humility, brothers and sisters. It's a true humility that sees itself, sees oneself as they truly are. And this humility will also look like meekness. To be meek is the opposite of arrogance and being oppressive. One person I read wrote, the meek are those who do not throw their weight about. A good, that's a good lesson to some of us. We like to throw our weight around to get things done. But the meek do not do that. Rather, they are gentle and lowly in heart. This is what Jesus embodies and lives, doesn't he? And he invites us to learn as we experience his gentleness toward us. I want to jump just a little bit further in the, in the gospel Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Do you know what a yoke is? I guess you don't. You ever seen those pictures of oxes too? And they've got the big beam around their, their, their shoulders and they're carrying some massive load. Jesus says, take my yoke. Put me on and learn from me. There's an experience there. Come to me. It's just another image. Put me on your shoulders. Come and learn from me. And what do we learn? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Oh, I thought that yoke was going to be a heavy burden. But he says, no, 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 no. You learn. And this is where the sermon is going to bring us in. Jesus is going to show us the way to true happiness, the way to true flourishing, the, the way to truly live as God designed. And initially you may say, oh my word, this is, this is overwhelming. No, come to me who are weary and I will give you rest. Come and learn from me. He speaks it and then he lives it and he says, come. Come. Appropriate this in your life. Learn. Learn from me what it means to be gentle and lowly in heart. Well, what we learn is that these virtues are grace-filled. They're life-giving in Christ. We learn and experience these virtues as we enter a relationship with Jesus. In other words, the more you sit at Jesus' feet, listening, and you begin to watch him unfold in the pages of Scripture, the more you will be transformed to be like him. You know what my heart is for my life and my heart is for yours? That we would do far less scrolling on our iPad and more page turning in our Bibles. Because that will be life destroying. This is life giving. But many of you will say, but that's a burden. And I would say it's because you haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. 
You haven't come to him in faith. You haven't come with him in a broken and contrite spirit. Taste and see the goodness that he has towards you. That's one of the reasons in my community group we're going to just read. I'm not going to talk. We're just going to read this. And I encourage you to do the same. It is the humble, as Christ is humble, whom the kingdom belongs. Who will be comforted. And, and it's the meek, he says, who will inherit the earth. That's what the kingdom will involve. No, the world will tell you, no, the meek will never inherit anything. That's the lie of the evil one. We already saw that in the temptation. Bow yourself before me, and you can get all you want the easy way. And Jesus tells us, no, that's not the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And his way, and he is meek and gentle. And although every fiber in our being says, nope, i got to take matters into my own hands, Jesus says it's the meek who will inherit the earth. It's the meek. So true happiness is found among those who embody the virtues of humility. Brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of being in the church. It's the beauty of being relational people. The Lord gives us plenty of opportunity to grow in this, doesn't he? <laughs> gives us plenty of opportunity. Every conflict, every misunderstanding is an opportunity to learn humility, to practice these virtues. Oh, what a beautiful community that is of a people who are, who are poor in spirit, who grieve over their sins, they're quick to grieve over their own sins, and are meek and gentle towards one another. I tell you, that's a world, that's a people, a community that all of us, believer or non-believer, wants to be a part of. Nobody wants someone harsh. No one wants the, the rich in spirit. Nobody wants the haughty. No one wants the arrogant and the oppressive. No, we want Jesus. And as Jesus' people, we will look like him and we will be, as we will learn, salt of the earth. This is good news. This is a community. This is a kingdom by which we all are longing for. And so true happiness is found among those who embody the virtue of humility, but also the virtues of righteousness. Righteousness in Matthew refers to living in accordance with God's nature, will, and coming Let me say that again since I went out. Righteousness in Matthew refers to living in accordance to God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. It's the heart of the Lord's Prayer. We're going to see this unfold in the sermon. Your kingdom come your will be done. That's, that's God's righteousness. I want your right order, your will, your nature, your characteristics to reign. I want your kingdom to come. Jesus will, will tell us, do not be anxious about the things of the world, what you'll eat or what you'll wear, but seek first his kingdom and his what righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. They're, they're paired right there. In chapter 6, verse 33. And here in the Beatitudes, he's introducing this concept. And he says, it's those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness who will be satisfied. What a vivid picture. Do you hunger and thirst? I actually am right now. I'm thirsty. 
That's all right. I don't need anything. But I'm thirsty. You know that, that feeling of being parched. Or, or maybe you're hungry and your stomach's longing for a meal. And you've experienced that when you grab that nice cold water or that ice cold Coke or whatever it is of your, your choice. And you eat and you are satisfied. Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for my kingdom, for righteousness of God, it is those who will be satisfied. Those who will have their thirst quenched. And when I look at that and I came across that text, I was like, oh, how I, I hunger and thirst for the things that will never satisfy. It's actually where my mind went with the, with the phones. Oh, they're awesome, right? They're neat. They're cool. We got to get the latest one that comes out because it's going to satisfy my greatest longings. It never does. never does. But Jesus says, come follow me and see and savor that which is truly good. That's what he's saying. There's a better way. Come follow me and your thirsts and your hungers will be satisfied in my kingdom. Delight yourself in God, the psalmist says, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The other two virtues in this triad really are expressions of those who long for God's righteousness. That is, his right order and will in the world. And Jesus says, they will be merciful. Do you see that there? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Why? Because they have experienced the mercy of Christ. The loving care and forgiveness of their sins in Christ. Tell me a person who's unmerciful, and I'll show you a person who doesn't know the mercy of Christ. One who's going to exact every penny from somebody, who keeps every record of wrong. They fail to remember that's not how they learn Christ. We'll get to it. There will be a parable of the unforgiving servant. All these things just start unpacking as we get in Matthew. We're like, yeah, that guy, unbelievable. He got cleansed his whole debt, and then he's exacting 10 bucks from some other guy. But how often do we exact? Jesus says, I'm not that way. That's not how you learned me. Come, come, and you will have life. You will find that I forgive you of all your sins. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. Again, this is the, the prayer that's reflected, or this virtue is reflected in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive others. Matthew 6, 12. Why, why is that phrase in there? Because those truly forgiven will forgive. Those who are truly forgiven will forgive. Because they realize the weight of their own sin. These are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn, those are me. You see, you, these are all kind of adding up and they're just expressions of God's true kingdom people, those who have experienced the love of Christ in their life. Paul will use it as the fruit of the spirit. Not only are they merciful, not only do they love much because they've been forgiven much, but they're pure in heart. This expression reflects not only the blessing of having one's sins cleansed, but the sweetness and genuine love of God within them. 
You can see that in the blessing pronounced. Those who are pure in heart, for they see God. That's very similar to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied. Do you, do you realize the satisfaction is in seeing God? And the pure heart, it's a pure conscience. Lord, that's what I want. My heart wants your will to be done. My heart wants to be satisfied in you. You might be saying, I'm not there. One of the prayers I often pray is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I want to want like that. And I would say you're being pure in heart. You're desiring the things of God. Foster that desire. Grow that desire. Come and taste and be satisfied so that desire is even more produced in you. That's what Jesus is getting after. That's what it means to have a, a pure heart. Peter, Peter talks about it in the passage that we, we read. About those who desire to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Now whom is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. I wonder where he's getting this. He's reflecting on his Lord's teaching here. He goes on, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here it is, having a good conscience. Good conscience is another way to say I'm pure in heart. My motives, my desires... Yeah, well, I mean, on this side of heaven, yep, I, I mourn over my sin, I confess my sin, but here's my, here's where the trajectory, Lord, this is where I am going. I want to love you and I want to love others. That's my hunger and my thirst and my desire and everything I'm trying to do, Lord, I failed in this conversation. Lord, help me go back with a brokenness of heart to come to those who, whom I have sinned against and wronged. Because I long to see you. I long to be satisfied. I long to experience your comfort. I long to be in your kingdom. Finally, true happiness results from the virtues of peacemaking. And this virtue goes beyond the mere desire to not rock the boat or be passive and just kind of go under the radar. No, the one who bears this virtue actively seeks to bring the peace of God on earth. And they seek this to occur in a world that actually opposes the peace of God. If you haven't noticed, we live in an angry world. Everyone has an opinion about everything. And when someone hears that opinion they don't like, they say, them fighting words. And then they take to their phones. But God's children, who are at one time in hostility with God and with one another, know the peace of God. We know what it was like to live that way. That way which just brought heartache and pain and conflict. And yet now we have learned God's way and we are ambassadors for Christ. God's representatives seeking to be 
reconcilers, calling people to faith in Christ. Again, Christ sets the example as one who was reviled, but did not revile in return. Who laid down his life as a criminal, though he was innocent. This is one of the things that that the Lord presses in my heart over and over again, and you will hear from me over and over again as we continue to learn from Jesus. We often say, but I'm not guilty. I don't have to go do that. Aren't you glad your Savior didn't do that? But they did it. Okay, can you absorb their wrong? Because love covers a multitude of sins. We have much to learn from our master, don't we? But yet when we are persecuted, reviled, or have wicked things spoken against us falsely, notice that, it's not true. It occurs. He tells us, verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Again, we're looking We're holding ourselves to the truth. What what is said of us, no matter what the world reviles us falsely against us, we comfort ourselves with the truth that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. Our Heavenly Father loves and cares for us. But I want you to see here, oftentimes these texts are used to say, well, you know what, I've been wronged by somebody, I'm being persecuted. But notice he sets the bounds, the limitations for it. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, verse 10, for righteousness' sake. Well, we've already decided what righteousness was, right? God's will, God's nature, God's kingdom. Jesus says it a different way, verse 11. When you are reviled, things are falsely said against you on my account. That's what righteousness is. When you are reviled for being like Jesus, not for being a jerk, you don't get to call that verse, well, no. No, we, on my account, because you were gentle, you were poor in spirit, you were mourning, you were merciful, and they take advantage of you. Then you can't, you you claim this verse. Not because you stirred the pot, and you, you got yours and you took matters in your own hands and things went south. Well, let me wrap up here. In these virtues, Jesus, and I'm speaking to all of us, but if you're, you're not a Christian here today, I want you to hear this. In these virtues, these nine virtues that I've kind of lumped into three groups of humility, righteousness, and peacemaking, Jesus presents for us a beautiful picture to entice your soul to come to him. That's what he's doing. These are virtues of his kingdom and his rule and his people. And let me ask you, don't you want a king who embodies these things? Don't you want one who will lay down his life for you? That when you're mourning, he will bring you comfort? That what you long and thirst for, he's satisfied? That he's gracious to you? That he doesn't hold a record of wrong against you? And that all his people love you? Don't you want to experience those blessings? 
Jesus says, then come to me, and I will give you rest. So after the service, if you're saying, well, what does that look like? I'm going to be out there. Come, tell me, I want to follow Jesus. If you're intimidated by me, talk to the person who brought you here or another person who's sitting next to you and say, I, I want to follow Jesus. Help me do that. And we'll tell you what that looks like so that you may be part of this kingdom community and you may truly find the happiness that God intends in all the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, may your word bring life today. May it bring healing. Lord, just like a good and perfect father, you, your hand both disciplines and heals, both rebukes but comforts. And so, Lord, I pray that we find the great comfort that is in your son. And that we would be overwhelmed by that wave of grace that comes dripping off his teaching, off his lips as we sit at his feet. And Lord, may we be captivated. And as we come to you, may we become more like you because we see you in all your beauty and your splendor. Lord, thank you for saving us. And Lord, as we continue to worship you, not only in singing this last song, but as we go and we depart, Lord, may, may these virtues, may these blessings be on our mind. And may you draw us ever closer to yourself. And all Jesus' people said, amen. Let's stand and let's sing.